Well, as I said, we are finishing off our series uh, called Magnify, where we have sought to get a view of God's goodness and God's glory that is so vividly portrayed in the Psalms so that we may magnify him. That is, make a big God begin to look as big as he really is. And we wrap this series up this week with Psalm 146, our trustworthy king. But before we, we get into it, it's worth just stepping back for a moment and, uh, and seeing the bigger picture. Uh, the Psalms are a bit of a roller coaster ride. Uh, you need only pick out, flick through Psalms, pick out a few Psalms um, to discover that the tone sort of shifts between lament to praise and, and back to lament again. And actually, there's something about that uh, that resonates with this because it sort of reflects our day to day lives, doesn't it? Our day to day years, um, even, even year on year. However, when you do step back, when you do step back, and when you view the, the Psalms as a whole, there is a gradual movement toward praise. And so by the time you get to the last five Psalms, Psalm 146, 147, 148, 149, 150, it is praise that has prevailed. At the end of the day, we are called to praise. And so the very last sentence of the very last Psalm, let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. So contrary to how the Psalms are often perceived, there is a rhyme and reason to the book. Now there's something else that I want you to notice about these last five Psalms, and that is, and you can see this, by the way, particularly if you have your Bibles open in front of you, because they each begin and end with the word hallelujah. Actually, the NIV translates it as praise the Lord. Okay? They each begin and end with this praise the Lord. Now, hallelujah, translated as praise the Lord, in Hebrew, it is a plural imperative. Okay? So it means something like this. Come on, all of yous. Right? Praise the Lord. It's not so much an exclamation of praise as it is a call to praise. And now we can get into Psalm 146, where the author begins uh, and ends with that phrase, praise the Lord. But he really begins in earnest in verse 2 by making a personal vow, a personal vow. He says, I will praise the Lord all my life. I will sing praise to my God as long as... I live. How is your praise life going? Or prayer life. How is your praise life going? See if one of these answers resonate, resonates with you. So one might instinctively answer that question, perhaps defensively answer that question, it's good, which would make one a hypocrite, wouldn't it? 
One might uh, answer with uh, a sense of regret, but with zeal, uh, it's not good enough. Or one might uh, say in despair, oh, it's no good at all. And psalms such as this one are often used to force us to twist our arm or pressure others to praise. And yet at this point, I'm going to make a beeline to what makes us feel slightly uncomfortable when we read psalms like this, and in particular, verses such as this one. And that is, who among us, who among us hasn't taken and then gone ahead and broken a similar sounding vow? Think about it, right? Uh, assuming that King David wrote this psalm and therefore made this vow. Did he keep it? No. No, he didn't. Even King David, whom God calls a man after his own heart, didn't praise God as he vowed he would. Actually, the reality is that none of us heed this call to unadulterated, to unceasing Praise. The Bible tells us actually that we are prone to exchange the truth of God for a lie and worship and serve created things rather than the creator. And so as I said, sometimes we use psalms like this to force us to sort of twist, twist our arms or to pressure others to praise. Now, it is a version of Bible bashing and it simply doesn't work. Simply being told to praise, however forcefully, however eloquently, doesn't actually move our hearts to praise. And so the question is, how are our hearts moved to praise? How are our hearts moved to praise? Because an exhortation alone is not going to do it. We need an example we need a worship leader. That's what we need. We need a worship leader. You see, the Psalms and, and uh, other parts of scriptures kept calling this calling for this unadulterated and unceasing praise, but no Israelite succeeded in giving it. Until centuries later when Jesus kept this vow perfectly. You see, Jesus is the one who truly and ultimately magnifies his Father. He praises him, he makes him known. And so our hearts are moved to praise, not by exhortation, but actually by gospel, right? And the gospel tells us that Jesus is the one man in human history who praised God as we are called to. <clears throat> and so although we fall short, 
we are nevertheless invited to join in as Jesus leads us in praise. It's not, it's not an invitation to take up the microphone, if you will. Right? It's an invitation to join in the choir. Now that takes some of the pressure, takes off some of the pressure, doesn't it? And moves our hearts to praise. And so in a Mexican wave, you guys been a part of Mexican waves before? You look like a Mexican wave crowd, so. In a Mexican wave, right, uh, we are not the ones trying desperately to get something off the ground, to get something going. We're the ones sitting on the other side of the stadium uh, who are called to join in. And, and this psalm gives us plenty of reasons why we ought to join in. But first, a warning. Do not put your trust in princes, in human beings who cannot save. Now, I don't know about you, but I've never been tempted to put my trust in Prince Charles. No, you and I know that uh, oftentimes when the Bible speaks of princes, uh, it is speaking of uh, um, influential, sort of shorthand for powerful or influential uh, men or women for, the mat- for that matter. And so here we are warned against the temptation of putting our trust in men or women who cannot save themselves, let alone us. Sometime later this year, there will be another federal election here in Australia. And as far as I know, although these days there are no givens, we will be voting for either Scott Morrison or Anthony Albanese to uh, lead their respective parties in governing Australia. Now, the Bible has much to say about how we ought to interact with governing authorities. And so we ought to pray for those in positions of authority. We ought to submit to those in authority. We're to pay what is owed to governing authorities and so on. But one thing we're clearly told not to do is to put our trust in them. The psalmist could not be any clearer, could he? Do not put your trust in princes. Why? It is very simple, because they will die. They cannot save themselves, let alone us. Verse 4, when their spirit departs, they return to the ground. And on that very day, their plans come to nothing. And so contrary to popular belief, contrary to Disney, princes and princesses do not live happily ever after. Even uh, Alexander the Great, right, a prince among men, died at aged uh, 32. It's a little older than me. And on his deathbed, his troops, his troops flocked to him. They, they do flock to him, to their beloved leader on his deathbed. And an ancient Greek historian uh, actually observes the moment. And he writes, Nothing could keep them from the sight of him, and the motive in almost every heart was a grief of a sort of Helpless bewilderment at the thought of losing their king. 
helpless bewilderment. That is what happens when we put our trust in princes and princesses who die. And I think the text challenges us to consider who our princes and princesses might well be. It asks us, in whom do you put your trust in? I know we have this thing in Australia called tall poppy syndrome, where we are allergic to anyone who would put themselves up on a pedestal. But that doesn't stop us from doing it for them. Australian politics, for example, is becoming more Americanized, and so we are tempted to put our trust in politicians. This year, our politicians will plan and they will promise, but in the end, they will deliver little that will last and nothing to solve the greatest need that we have. Or what about pastors? Now, I want to be clear here, I'm not crowning myself a prince. The point is, you're not to put your trust in pastors either. Myself included, right? Even pastors cannot save you. I received a, a text message this week from a dear and trusted friend who was helping me come to terms with my limitations as I manage my expectations upon myself as well as your expectations upon me. I'm only one person. I'm limited. I'm weak. Don't put your trust in me. One day I will die. Don't put your trust in me. To do so will leave you bitter and angry when uh, I fail you somehow or when my plans come to nothing. Neither should you put your trust in family or friends, wife or husband. Don't get me wrong, these princes and princesses are a gift. But we ought not put our trust in them because they are fallen too and you will trip over them if you put your trust in them. Don't get me wrong, I'm very thankful for the princes and the princesses that God has brought into my life to help me. But we should not put our trust in them, otherwise we will be left helplessly bewildered. The sort of trust he is talking about, by the way, is not simply considering someone trustworthy and trusting them with something. It is trusting somebody to be for you only what the Lord can be for you. It is trusting somebody to do for you only what the Lord can do for you. It is trusting somebody to give to you only what the Lord can give to you. 
He alone is your God. He alone can save. He alone can give you meaning and purpose and security and freedom and joy. And how often do we trust in other people to provide those things? Blessed are those whose help is in the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord their God. Why? Because he is the maker of heaven and earth, the sea and everything in them. He remains faithful forever. And then the next few verses go on to describe, list all the different ways that God remains faithful forever and helps the righteous. Now, whenever you read of the righteous in the Psalms, it comes up in Psalm 1, actually. Whenever you read of the righteous in, in, in the Psalms, it is actually talking about those who are righteous by faith, those who put their trust in God. And so the following verses in, in these Psalms do not describe different categories of people. They are vivid ways of describing us, if you consider yourself righteous by faith. They are vivid ways of describing us, the oppressed, the hungry, the prisoners, the blind, the bowed down, the foreigner, the fatherless and the widow describe the righteous who live among the wicked in a wicked world. And the promise is that he will make everything right. He will make everything right. What an election promise. He says, you've been oppressed, I'll give you justice. You're hungry, I'll feed you. You feel trapped, I'll free you. You're blind, I'll make you see. You're beaten down, I'll lift you up again. You're hated because of your righteousness, I'll love you. You feel like an outcast, I'll welcome you and watch over you. You're on your own, I'll sustain you. God is to be praised because he is utterly trustworthy, faithful, powerful, compassionate and just. During his speech at the <clears throat> Republican National Convention back in 2016, Donald Trump famously said these words. I've joined the political arena so that the powerful can no longer beat up on people that cannot defend themselves. Nobody knows the system better than me, which is why I alone can fix it. Now that is a huge claim, <laughs> which powerful and influential people have made throughout history I alone can fix it. I alone can save you. But uh, five years on, we've seen that no human can back that claim up. But that is the claim that God is making here. I alone, I alone can fix it. I alone can save you. How do we know that God can back that up? Well, because God has already shown us that he can. He has shown us time 
and time and time again throughout the history of his people. But ultimately, we look to God's great faithfulness to needy people such as us in Jesus and know that he is capable of fixing it. He is capable of saving us. See, Jesus himself actually showed when he came, he showed that he had all the power that is described in this psalm. And so in Matthew 11, when John the Baptist, John the Baptist is in prison, And John the Baptist hears of all the things that Jesus is is doing and saying. And so he sends one of his disciples to ask Jesus, are you the one who is to come or should should we expect someone else? And to which Jesus replied, look, go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight. The lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed. The deaf hear, the dead are raised and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. And to think that that was all only a taste of the new heavens and the new earth. But by willingly going to the cross, he actually showed us what our greatest need truly was, and that is the forgiveness of our sins. And here in Psalm 146, ultimate eternal blessings are promised to those whose help is in the Lord, whose hope is in him, because there was one prince who didn't stay in the ground, but who rose to become king. The Psalms track the ups and the downs of our lives so well. But they land exactly where we should land. Praise. No one can force us. No one can pressure you. We must choose to magnify him in our lives. Sometimes our circumstances sort of momentarily obscure our view of God's goodness and glory, but we must never allow our praise. Listen carefully. We must never allow our praise to be controlled by our circumstances. Instead, we must allow our praise to control how we respond to our circumstances. After all, praise is not an overflow of our experience. It is an expression of our faith. I'll say that again. Praise is not an overflow of our experience, but an expression of our faith. I think of what Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians. Therefore we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles 
and achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. And so we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Friends, if we don't praise the king, we'll be praising princes. So how is your praise life going? What we need is an example. What we need is a worship leader. And in Jesus, we have one who, despite his circumstances... praised God and forever leads the praises of the people of God. You don't have to start it. You don't have to sustain it. And yet in the Holy Spirit that dwells within us, we have the invitation and the increasing inclination to join the choir led by Jesus in the praise of the Father, for he is our trustworthy king. I wonder if anyone knows what the middle chapter of the Bible is. The the middle chapter, that is, if you count from both ends, work your way inward, does anyone know the middle chapter? I believe it's Psalm 117, which is the shortest psalm, so I'll read it to you. Praise the Lord, all you nations. Extol him, all you peoples, for great is his love toward us, and the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. Let me pray. Father God, we thank you that your faithfulness endures forever. That you are our trustworthy king. That while princes and princesses will fail us, you will not. Pray that we would put our hope in you. And I pray that your word, this word, might dwell in us, spreading to every nook and cranny of our lives that it might bear fruit for your glory. Amen.